Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Uh, before we jump into the Word, I want to just ask you this question. And for us all just kind of get on the same page together. What would you say for you was one of the greatest moments in your life? Some of you, depending upon your age and where you are right now, some of you, maybe you would have said, you know what, the greatest moment in my life was was the day that I got married. And whenever, you know, she said yes and you were nervous and you got all dressed up and you went up and there was this moment in front of everybody and... and, and and you said your vows, and you were hoping, man, I hope she completes hers, and this is going to be a done deal, and we spent a lot of money for this day. What are we going to do with the food if she says no? And yet she did say yes. And, and you would say, wow, that is one of the greatest moments of my life. Maybe, maybe for, for you it was the birth of your children, and for you moms that you carried that child for all those months, and you got... The, the baby's room all done up and you got all of the crib and the paint and everything else that you made your husband do, everything through that whole experience. And, and then there was the day that uh, wherever it was for you, but, but you gave birth to the child and, and, and the caregiver, the nurse took the child and you had carried this child for nine months only for that child to come out and look just like its father, right? Has that <laughs> ever happened to anybody? It's like some of these are like some of the greatest moments in our life. And maybe maybe you're on the younger scale of things and you're like, you know what? I got out of middle school and that was enough for me. And you would say, wow, uh, I got through middle school and to see, you know, to see what high school is like and to see that there's life beyond that weirdness um, that we call middle school. One of the greatest days, I've had a lot of great days in my life, but one of the greatest days in my life that when I was in the Navy and I did a, a Mediterranean and Persian Gulf tour or cruise, not a pleasure cruise by any means, but had been gone for six months. And when I came back, it was an amazing thing for me. As a matter of fact, I, this isn't a picture of my experience, but it's an experience similar to it. I have a, a picture of like an aerial view of what we call manning the rails. And it, this picture, if you look at it, there's actually people standing all around the top of the aircraft carrier. I remember, I had the opportunity to do this twice. I remember this specifically because we stood out there for hours well before we saw, we saw any land. But because they, you know, I was at the point where I had um, no say-so on what I did. I only had to take orders, not give orders. I had to stand up here, uh, stand just like that for hours and hours and hours as we were coming into port. And this is the way that we would come into port. And when we, we would come in, it would just be a Pate, not a party. It would be a pate. The whole city would light up. Like if you've ever seen this before, like you would come in like this, and then you know, I have another picture. Um, that this is a close picture. What it would be like for us who were there, and we would be standing like this, and they actually provided the outfits. It was amazing. Um, and. <laughs> We'd have to stand just like this. And, and what's really cool about this picture specifically, like I said, this is not my picture, but what's really cool about this one is about middle way in the picture, that would be the, about the place that I was on my, on, when we were coming back in from deployment. That's where I would be. Um, I wasn't supposed to be there. As a matter of fact, I was actually, my squadron was assigned to the other side of the carrier that wouldn't have seen anybody. 
Um, coming into port, it, I would have just been looking at the water, but I um, just kind of being, uh, I guess, a little sneaky, I actually snuck into this this other group of people that I had no idea who they were. So I would be there because I had told my wife, I told Marla, I said, I want you looking right center stage, right at the carrier, and that's where I want you to stand. So I was sneaky, and that's exactly where I was, and we were able to see each other. But it was amazing on, on these types of days, and both opportunities that I had to, to come in after deployment um, came into Naval, uh, Naval Station Mayport, or excuse me, Norfolk. And we kind of left out of the Mayport area. And when we would come back in, the whole place would just light up with energy. And all of the family members and, and really the whole city would light up. And as we would come in, there would be cheering and there's music. And it's just, I mean, it's just chaos. And it was a beautiful chaos. And then as you leave the base, there are signs up that says, Welcome home, whatever ship that you're on. I served on the Theodore Roosevelt and the Eisenhower. It said, Welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. We like Ike. And welcome home, Theodore Roosevelt. And just this amazing um, just warming effect of them inviting us back into the country that we had been missing for six months or longer for some. But you know, these days are great. The day that's uh, being mentioned here in the scriptures that we're going to see today was a celebration like we have never seen. Up to this point, there was this expectation for hundreds of years that, of this day and the events that would happen during this week. This whole series, the whole scandalous series, is I'm, I'm, I'm wanting us to look at the events that happened during the Passion Week, not of a, just the, the tame way of looking at it and saying, wow, I already know the story, Palm Sunday, I already know about this. But I want us to really dig into what's going on in the city and how the people respond to what Jesus does and honestly what Jesus says about himself in the midst of this week because in that time, those people didn't view it like we do. We view it through the scriptures and, well, you know, Jesus is God. And even if you're not a, a Jesus follower right now, you, you know the stories. But these people were living it firsthand. So this is uh, the events that are happening today, specifically, is Pond Sunday. And the, the city of Jerusalem normally would have 50, 60, 70,000 people. But during the Passover week, the city would swell to two or three million. So it's a city that the land-wise is much smaller than Dublin. So this city would be just swelled with energy and excitement. Everyone would come into this area for the Passover week. Now, the scripture we're going to be looking at today specifically is found in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. If you've forgotten your Bible, we've actually kind of place Bibles under the chairs. Um, so if you need one, just tap someone on the shoulder and just grab one and, uh, and open it up to Luke 19. So the city is just brewing with excitement. And so many people, millions of people in the city of Jerusalem, a city that would be kind of a, a sleepy town any other, any other time. But during this week... The city would just be booming. People would be excited. People would be giving sacrifices. People would be everywhere. People would be outside of the city and inside of the city. The event specifically of Palm Sunday that we'll look at today 
right after, or right before rather, this text is the story of, of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And, and, and he's, Jesus had been just telling a story in the Gospel of Luke. What I love about uh, the Gospel of Luke specifically is he is someone who didn't start out as following Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, he was a Gentile and he was a doctor. And that was his job. So his job was to be a doctor, but yet God inspired him to be a great historian of all the events, or most of the events, of Jesus' life. And he captures things in a very unique perspective. And he, he captures things in such a way, and if you haven't read um, your Bible in a while, maybe you're looking for something to read, read the Gospel of Luke. Because it's an incredible thing that shows you the humanity specifically of Jesus. And in this text, we're going to see a great example of that. Luke 19, verse 28 says, After Jesus had said this, after he had given the parable of the ten minas, he went on ahead going, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. He had sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village. Ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untiring it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had told them. And as, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. As he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud, in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the, in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and your children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In this text, one of the most scandalous things I think that that you see in this text, but really this happens in so many places in the Bible, is this, that you can get swept up into emotional moments with God. You can get swept up into emotional moments with God and not have a true movement in your heart towards God. You can be so caught up in the moment you can be so, in the moment of a worship experience, you can be so caught in, in hearing the right song and it just touches your heart in the right way or hear the right story, just touches you in the right way. You can be just so driven to tears and even in the midst of all of that emotional stirring, you can, you can not have a true movement of your heart towards God. That's exactly what we see in this text. 
The whole city is astir. The disciples are with Jesus. Some of the people that, that he had healed were with Jesus as he's coming into this area. I have actually stood on the Mount of Olives and I've seen what's being referenced here of just looking down the valley and looking up at the old city of Jerusalem. And I can't take you there. But just to be able to to experience or think about what Jesus saw. That when he looked at the city and we see the end of this text, we saw that there was this, this group of people who were so burdened and yet they missed it. And they were, they were excited. There were those who were burdened for what Jesus would say. And there were so, pe- so many people who were on the street throwing palm leaves. We see this from other gospel accounts. Throwing their, their coats out, which we're going to explain this in just a minute. All of these things, it's all of this stirring that's going on. But Jesus condemns them at the very end of this text. He condemns them. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace... What he's saying to them is, you have missed it. That your hearts are so hard that you've missed it. If you would have only recognized this, my three years of public ministry, and you have missed it. And he's saying them, and he's condemning them. And he said, and it's too late. And then he talks about an event that would actually happen years and years later, decades later. And he talks about the fall of Jerusalem, which we know this as being historically true. The fall of Jerusalem happened in A.D. 70. Millions of Jews died. So Jesus, on Palm Sunday, he comes in to just really to open up the fact that he is the Messiah. And people, they're just serenade him as being the Messiah. And they're stirred emotionally. But what I think is one of the most scandalous things from this text and what we're going to see in this whole series is this. Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and the whole city is all stirred up. But when Jesus is being crucified, he dies alone. They're all caught up in the miracles of Jesus. They're all caught up in the events of this day. But less than a week later... It would be like this day never happened. And to me, that's baffling, scandalous. The text, I'm going to jump back through this. They're asking about the colt, and a colt would would come in, and, and a king, if a king came in on a horse, it would be most likely a bloody horse, and that would say, this is a time of battle. So if a king came into the town on a horse specifically, it would be a time of battle. And and it would be not only to just rally the troops, but no, hey, we are in battle mode. This is a crisis mode. But Jesus doesn't come in on a bloody horse, does he? He comes in on a young donkey. And any time that a king would come in on a young donkey, it it was a time known as peace. So he would come in and they, there was this full expectation for hundreds of years that Jesus being the Messiah would come in and he would come in as this roaring figure into town. And he would come in, they would have expected there would just be a war and here's our general and we're going to take this land. But Jesus comes in on a colt. That had to have been confusing. That had to have been confusing. The Jewish people so much more than what we can even understand, had this, this uh, 
this expectation that the Messiah was coming for hundreds of years. They were looking for signs everywhere. And when Jesus would come in on this day specifically, they would come in and just this parade of welcome. And he came in on as, as a young donkey, as a symbol of peace, that he is our way to peace. Let me ask you this. Would you say that you actually have peace in your life right now? Is, or would you characterize your life as being nothing but chaos? Do, do you actually have a peace in your life right now? Or do you try and find things to numb the pain so you can have some artificial peace? The people in the city, as they're stirred, verse 32, it says, Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had told them, the colt. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. This, this name implies something about Jesus, that He, his, his kingdom, the messianic reign, that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, will transcend every king, every political figure, every political movement, every societal movement, every kingdom, everything on earth. Jesus' reign will go beyond that. Everything else will collapse and fall. And the reign of Jesus will remain. It says the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. There's no power. There's no person. There's no king. There's, there's no other Lord who can oppose Him and win. None. What I think is incredible about this text specifically is it would have been justifiable for Jesus to come in on a bloody horse before those people and to come in and they would have expected that. But Jesus did not come in that way. He came in in such a way, the most humble of ways. The most humble of ways. It says in Luke 19.36... It says this, as he went along, people spread out their cloaks on the road. They recognized there was something different about Jesus in this moment. They recognized that he, he was Messiah, at least they did superficially. The celebration is going. It says in Matthew 21.10 that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. When he came into the city, the whole city was talking about, what, what, what's going on? Is this Messiah? This is Messiah. Is this Messiah? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. 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 It, it, it could be Messiah. We probably ought to listen. We, we probably ought to really pay attention in this moment. The whole city was stirred. The parallel passages, they talk about the palm branch. And the palm branch was, in the pre-Christian times, it was a symbol of triumph and victory. 
So the palm branch, as the, the, the king and royalty would come into the city and they would throw down palm branches and say, you know what, we won. This victory was ours. To the early Christians, the palm branch it symbolized the victory of the faithful over the enemies of the soul. And to the Romans, they rewarded the champions of the games with palm branches and they celebrated all their military successes with them. Timothy Keller, in a book that I would recommend that you read, called King's Cross, he said this. He says, in Jesus, in Jesus, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. How could Jesus have done this? How could, how could Jesus have been the perfect balance between the tension of all of these ideas? How could he have done it? He must have been God. Infinite majesty. Majesty is a word used for royalty, and yet complete humility. Perfect justice. We're going to see this even next week. The way that he levels, he leverages himself to bring justice to these people, and yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty. He's in control. He's got a plan. He knows. Yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself. Yet entire trust and dependence on God the Father. How could he have done this? We could not do this ourselves, could we? Is there any possible way you could be all of these things? Of course not. Only Jesus could be these things. Thankfully, only Jesus had to be these things. Luke 19.37 says this. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. For all the miracles they had seen. Not because... Wow, we're, we're crowning Messiah right now. It's just because of the things that Jesus has done. They had been so caught up in the moments of Jesus, but this, I think, is, is just really just a condemnation on them of saying that there was not at this moment a true movement in their hearts. They were so caught up in everything that Jesus had done. And Him having people who He had healed of, with the parade as He's coming into town. And how is it that they all could be cheering and celebrating this day and one week later they would be silent? Less than one week. Apparently their devotion had limitations. Which is it's surprising for me that this could possibly be the case. But I invite you to go into the Gospel of Luke, into Luke 9. Because in Luke 9... Just back a couple pages in your Bible. Jesus makes it perfectly clear. He makes it perfectly clear that there's a cost to following him. 
He makes it perfectly clear for you and I that there's a cost to following Jesus. Jesus doesn't just become an appendage to your life. Jesus becomes your life. He becomes not just your peace, but He becomes your strength. He becomes the example of humility that we need and that we're to live out. Luke 9 verse 18 says this, Once when Jesus was praying in private and His disciples were with Him, He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But He says this, and He's talking his, to His disciples. Personalize this. Now he's, he's talking to His disciples, and this is what He says. But what about you? But what about you? It's like, yeah, we we were talking about those other people. Who who, who do they say that I am? But he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Christ, the Messiah of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, if if anyone would want to be in Christ, if anyone would want to call himself the Christ follower... He must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some of you standing here will not taste death before you see The kingdom of God. What I find scandalous in our day is many people have the same posture as those who are willing to celebrate the works of Jesus, but there's no true movement in their heart towards Jesus. They're so satisfied with coming into places like this, singing incredible songs, clapping when you need to clap, laugh when you need to laugh, be serious when you need to be serious. And you kind of give what you feel you feel led to give. You can do all of those things, but there be no true movement in your heart. And you can just be okay with going through the motions. And you can be so caught up in the moments with God. And there be no true movement in your heart towards God. And that should scare you to death. That should put a lump in your throat that you could not get rid of. That should be something that wrestles within your spirit. So you ask yourself, am I in Christ or am I not in Christ? Am I in Christ or am I not in Christ? Am I just going through the motions again and again and again? Have I, am, am I trying to like live my life off of a salvation that is not a true salvation? Am I just trying to base my, my spiritual walk off of just little tidbits of experiences with God? Or am I trying to live my life wholeheartedly devoted to God? That should put a lump in your throat. That should be something you have to wrestle with. And if you don't wrestle with it, if you don't wrestle with it, 
You're living in one of two extremes. One, one extreme is good and the other one is not. One extreme could be, you know what? I'm rock solid in my faith. I remember when I gave my life to Christ. There has been growth. There's been, I, not perfectly, but increasingly, the love of God and love of others is kind of building up in me by, and by God's grace. I'm not the person that I was, but I'm not the person that I want to be by God's grace and by His mercy. That's one extreme. The other extreme is this. I don't really care. The other extreme could be, you know what, I'm here, that's good enough. The other extreme could be, you know what, I stopped caring a long time ago whenever that, 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 that Christ follower, that person who went to church, whenever they violated me, they victimized me, I stopped caring on that day and I'm, I'm not, I have not allowed God to move me beyond that day and that is a scary place. Maybe even for some, the reason why you stopped caring is because your conscience is seared. So even if the Holy Spirit was speaking to you, you could not hear it. That's a scary place to be. That means that there has been times where the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, trying to correct the behavior, trying to, trying to, to straighten you out, to try and do whatever it, it takes to, to draw you back from sin. But all of those times have fallen on your deaf ears, and now your conscience is seared. So now you can't even hear the Holy Spirit. All you can hear is your flesh. That should scare you. That should scare you. That should concern you. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to get caught up in the motions. Let us not get caught up in the motions, church. Let us be people who are passionate about, about following Jesus, understanding that we may not know all of what Jesus said for us to do. Maybe right now we're not living out the fullness of even what we think we should do, but yet we're pursuing Christ daily, moment by moment. We're trying to, to bear our cross the best way that we can and the way that He is leading us to do it so that we can be for our community, we can be for our marriage, we can be for our friends, we can be for our church, who God wants us to be. And who, is, who he is inspiring us to be. To ensure that we don't just got, get caught up in just the, the, just the moments. But we have true movement in our heart towards God. That means change. Change. Luke 19 verse 40. Jesus explains something to us. And he's, he's giving a reply to the Pharisees in verse 39. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So as, as the crowd is noisy and, and they're loud and they're all stirred, as, as Matthew said in his gospel, the whole city is stirred, then you still have those naysayers. You still have the nitpickers. You still have the critics. And in this situation, they're the Pharisees. And they're always the Pharisees. And they challenge Jesus Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, he's saying, get them to shut up. Why are they doing all this yelling? Don't you understand that you're disturbing what we have going on here, as the Pharisees, the Pharisees would say? Jesus replies to them with no sin at all, speaking right to their heart. He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He said, if they keep quiet, the stones 
will cry out. He says, I am the Lord of creation. There is no plan. There's no plan that will succeed against me. There's no king that will succeed against me. There's no kingdom that will succeed against me. He says, I am the Lord. Even the stones will cry out if my disciples fall silent. He is Lord. Verse 41. Very next verse. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. As the Messiah who came in peace, who offers true peace, he standing on the Mount of Olives looking at the old city of Jerusalem and all of the people and all of the excitement and a bunch of people who are clueless. And he wept over it. Because he knew what was coming. He knew that the events of AD 70 were going to bring a collapse. He knew that there were going to be, there were going to be hundreds of thousands of people who would die at the siege of the city of Jerusalem. He knew that the city would be in, dis- in, in destruction. He knew that many of them would be just violently killed publicly. But he also knew that there would be a lot of other people who have had to, to live through the wreckage who would actually die of hunger. And he was burdened over the condition of the city. I can't help but think that this is the same posture that a follower of Jesus is supposed to have on the city that we're living in in the community that we're embedded in. This should be the same posture that we have, that we would look out, I believe with all of my heart, every bit of my heart, please listen to me, I believe if we were actually take the same posture as Jesus and that we would weep over the condition of our city, that we would weep over the condition of the people in our city and, the, and everything that's going on, and the corruption that's going on, the racial divide that's happening in our city, not another city, in our city. I believe if we were to actually look and maybe step back from the world of social media and look back from the, the world of, of the news outlets that you follow and you, you would not be as stirred politically if you would actually you would sit and be broken over the condition of the people instead of trying to live your life by the sound bites of social media or the news outlet that you follow if we're to be weeping over the condition of our city we would be praying a lot more if we'd be weeping over the condition of our city, we wouldn't be so caught up in what's going on politically and whose side we're going to be on and whose side we're going to be against. We would just say, you know what? There are people across the board who are hurting and I am going to be so moved that the movement of God would well up in my heart that I would have a true movement and a true change in my heart that now I would want to be used as a vessel of God and I'm going to seek and I'm going to intercede on the condition of the people in my city and in my county and in my country and I'm going to intercede on their behalf. They may not even know that I'm praying for them, but I'm going to seek the Lord and I'm going to pray that God would heal our land. There needs to be a lot more of that. Honestly, than all of the junk that we see on our Facebook pages. There needs to be people who are pleading with God to heal our people, heal our land. The only way we're going to do this, the only way, is if we're not just satisfied with just the moments with God. We have to have a true movement in our heart with God. 
And when that happens, one of the things that happens is it increases our prayer life. It increases our eyes to see brokenness around us so that we would have the posture of Jesus as he's looking at the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over this city. It's scandalous to think that we can be so swept up into these emotional moments with God and not have a true movement in our heart towards God. Some of you, maybe you have very good reasons why this has never happened. And you have this, this event that happened 30 years ago. And yet you've never spiritually moved beyond that event. And maybe you, you want to, maybe you don't know how to, but maybe you're just angry. And maybe just that, that bitterness has festered up in you, and it has actually driven a wedge between where you currently are and what God's destiny is for you. And you say, you know what, uh, that person victimized me. I didn't do anything to deserve what happened to me. And I would say, you didn't deserve anything that happened to you. But you can't move into God's destiny for you while you're so busy living in your past. You have to be very careful. You have to be very careful because if you're the leader of your home, if you're a parent, or if you're in charge of a ministry, or or just a parachurch ministry, now you have a sphere of influence over someone else, and you can be bringing all of your baggage into somebody else's life, and they won't know what to do with it. And it's not fair to them. It's not fair to you. You can be so emotionally charged without being spiritually changed. Others maybe say, you know what? There was this time where I was pursuing God actively. I was, I was actively pursuing God. But then, but then there was these people who called themselves Christians. Then they, they, they did me wrong. They did my family wrong. And now you use this excuse, well, you know what? Now I'm just sowing my wild oats. I'm just, I'm just living life on my terms now. I tried it the other way. I tried it the, the, the good church person way. And, and they failed me. The system failed me. So now I'm just living out the way that I want to live. I'm just sowing my wild oats. Uh, let me, please listen to me. If that resonates at all with you, please listen to me. Have you ever thought about, what if there's a day, what if there's a day that's coming, and it's maybe coming very quickly, where you can never have a second chance to straighten out where you need to be right now? What if, you, what if you're not going to have a second chance to now, you can just decide on your own terms, I'm not going to sow my wild oats anymore, now I'm going to live life on God's terms. What if God says the end of your life is now and you don't have a chance to repent? What are you going to do? What if you're so bent on your rebellion and that bitterness turned to, to anger and rage and malice, all the things that are uh, really kind of just pinned out the, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.31. What if, if all of that is your reality and you've gotten to the point to where your conscience has been seared and you sit back and say, you know what, I'm just so, I'm living life on my terms, I'm sowing my wild oats, uh, eventually I'll do that. But what if, if the day comes where your conscience is seared and you don't know how to turn around? You don't have God saying to you, hey, you don't need to do that. What are you going to do then? What if the rebellion that you're living in right now, 
What if the rebellion you're living in right now brings about damage to your soul that is irreparable without God's intervention? What if, what if your act of rebellion that you're living out right now, what if it brings about damage to your soul that is irreparable outside of God's intervention? What are you going to do then? What are you going to do then? What if the consequences for your sins start, they start building up and then the consequences begin to be more than what you can bear? What are you going to do then? Can I give you a rec- just a recommendation? I recommend you repent now. I recommend that you do the, the necessary repentance now. I recommend that you get on your knees and pray now. I recommend that you don't talk to somebody else about your issues now. I recommend that you go to Almighty God and you become brokenness about the condition of your heart now. I, I recommend that, that although somebody did you wrong all those years ago, here's what I recommend. I recommend you don't go to them, that you don't hold on to the past, that you don't hold that over them because ultimately what you're doing is that, that bitterness is actually being held over yourself. What I recommend is this. Plead with God. Plead with God. Plead with God. For your own salvation. To redeem the brokenness in your past. Plead with God. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the living one. He is who the people expected to see for hundreds of years. And they looked at him. Many of these people looked at him for three years. And they missed it. They were so caught up in the emotional moments with God and the healing. But there was no true movement in their hearts towards God. Let us not be those people. In closing, let me, let me ask you this, this question, maybe a couple of questions. What would your life look like if you embraced the brokenness that Jesus gave us as, as an example of? What, what would your life look like if you, if you became broken over the condition of our city like he was over the city of Jerusalem? What would, what would your, your workplace be like if you stopped backbiting and stopped gossiping Stop slandering your boss for all the infractions that your boss has brought upon you. What would your workplace be like if you stopped all of that stuff and you simply prayed for your boss? What, and I know it's, I know it's such a politically charged time, but what would our country be like if we all decided that we weren't just going to be mad at the, at the other political party that we don't agree with, and we just became broken understanding that all of those political parties, and however you land, understanding they all represent people. And maybe the person who has an opposing view of yours, maybe in their mind they're completely justified with why they think the way that they do. So instead of finding an enemy... What if, just the Christians, if you're not a Christian, you're totally off the hook with this. 
But what if all the Christians just decided, you know what, I'm going to stay away from all of the, the, the political thing, the things that get you all politically charged and divide us as a country and say, you know what, I'm just going to be praying. I'm just going to be praying for the condition of our country. I believe the life that you want, the city that we need, the state that we need, the influence we need in our country can be found not with the strength of our words, but when we fall to our knees. Then we'll become the city on a hill. Then we'll become the influencers. Then people will look at our lives and they'll look at our church and they'll look at our city and say, well, there is something different about them. They just don't take all of the bait. They just, they just don't fall for these things like everybody else does. Instead, it seems like there's just this general humility and brokenness over the condition of the people. And I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. They're so strong in what they believe, but yet they serve the community like no one else does. It seems like they, they just have this, this idea that, that they believe that the Word of God is indeed the Word of God. And, and they hold to that belief, but, but yet when they talk to other people, they don't try and judge them. They just try to tell them that God loves them through the lens of the Scriptures. What, what if our reality became such that we stopped being God and Lord over everyone else and we just simply acknowledge God with all that we do. Matthew 6.33 tells us that we need to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all other things will be given to us. The thing that unlocks that is when we, when we humble ourselves and pray and trust God to do what only He can do and relying on His promises and the hope that He provides. 